the House come to order if members can take their seats. This budget is a huge job maker, and the number one solution to economic insecurity is a job. Hungry children can't learn, and it's our responsibility to try to help. Equality and opportunity. I believe most people are here because they want to do some good. It's Wednesday, March 23rd, 2022, and you're listening to Capital Ideas. That's the podcast where members of the Majority Democratic Caucus in the Washington State House of Representatives sit down at the Capitol and talk about ideas. Today's primary idea is helping young people to thrive, to learn, to lead healthy and productive lives. Paying a return visit to Capital Ideas to talk about these ideas and more is Representative Lisa Callan. Lisa lives in Issaquah, represents the 5th Legislative District, and she's one of the Capitol's top two or three lawmakers when it comes to crafting successful legislation to help Washington's children, youth, and families. We talk about that and more in today's episode. We recorded this conversation remotely a couple of days ago, and here we go. Welcome to Capital Ideas, Representative Lisa Callan of the Fighting Fifth down in South King County. Lisa hails from Issaquah, and I'm really happy to have you here again on Capital Ideas. Thanks, Dan. It's a pleasure to be here. Always looking forward to our conversations. Uh, I do, too, and this is going to be a good one, I think. The legislature just completed a 60-day session, and I know that you've got a lot of things to report. You've been maybe as busy as anybody. And what I want to focus on today is your work with children, youth, and families. That includes just about all of us. How did you come to focus on issues that are, that are really impactful for children, youth, and families? That's a, that's a really great question. Before I was uh, in the legislature, I was on the school board. Uh, for a local school district, the Issaquah School District, and um, come from a family of educators, come from a, a family of healthcare providers. And so when you look at how those systems touch every individual in our state, uh, really looking at how we can provide and set everybody up for their best chance to thrive starts at the moment of um, actually, you know, the prenatal care, uh, perinatal care and services, and then from the moment you're born and on. So the earliest touch points of what we can do to set up every person to be their best self and have their best opportunities starts there. And it just, that continuum grows, right? And so for every lost opportunity we have, the older that you get, the more complex and the harder it gets for people to meet their goals, their desires, their objectives, and to be able to fulfill their dreams. And also just from an economic perspective, it's a much higher cost to the state in terms of helping to support the needs of um, for individuals. And so to have a healthy family, to have a healthy community, to have a robust economy, it all starts with individuals' ability to thrive. What do you say, and I'm sure that you encountered this, what do you say to people that that tell you it's really not government's role to mess around in families. Yeah, it's really not about government messing around in uh, families and what they want. It's around providing, again, the opportunities and choices to thrive 
And what do you actually have accessibility to, to do on your own, right? What gives you those opportunities to be able to accomplish where you want to be and what you want to do? And I think it's, it's about that. It's about creating infrastructures and supports and creating robust economies, again, robust education systems and robust healthcare systems that are all accessible, that are affordable, that are high quality, that allow you as an individual to be your best self. And it's choices that you make on how you engage with those systems. Those are still your choice. That's still up to you. But if the system doesn't show itself in a way that provides those choices to begin with, or you have barriers to actually accessing any of that care and service, then you're not going to be able to have your chance to thrive and you're not going to be able to contribute to society in the way that you want to or that society needs you to in terms of the economy and um, you know, being an employer or an employee that is turning the dials of um, our economic engine and creating a good, healthy environment for our families and our learning environments and all of that. So I think that's that's the role of the state is to really make sure that there's access, that there's equity, that there's affordability and opportunity. And if there's not, then that's where we start to fail our individual Washingtonians. The legislature has specific committees that address specific things. In addition to these standing legislative committees, there's also something that you're a member of that is an incubator for a whole lot of the ideas that that you have worked for and managed to put into statute. What is the role of the Children and Youth Behavioral Health Work Group? Uh, yes, I have the great honor of serving on the Children and Youth Behavioral Health Work Group, which is a state work group that was started by Representative Ruth Kagey. I think it was five or six years ago. Representative Sin has been the chair. Representative Noel Frame has been co-chair, and now I serve as co-chair. This is made up of five subgroups, and the, the people that participate as members of the work group and then the subgroups have stakeholders that represent our families that are accessing care, that are our providers, our insurance companies, the healthcare authority, all of those that are involved in either receiving or delivering services around behavioral health. We have a group that focuses on the workforce and rates. We have a group that focuses on behavioral health integration, where you're integrating behavioral health care into primary care healthcare systems. A group that focuses on prenatal, perinatal care through the age of five. And then youth and young adult uh, continuum of care. So our teenagers as they're transitioning into adulthood. And then we have school-based behavioral health and suicide prevention as a subgroup. So you can imagine across that spectrum of services and supports, we cover all the age ranges and we cover and try to understand what and how, what services are needed and how those services where there's capacity issues, where there's gaps in services, where we're not meeting the needs and demands and growing the workforce that we need to meet all of that. And so from this work group, there's significant stakeholdering work that happens throughout the year. They bring forward recommendations over what's the next step, what's the next clear step of what we need to do, where we need to go to try to help build a more robust behavioral health system that meets the needs of all of our perinatal services up through the age uh, of 25. Then the work group um, will take all of the recommendations from all of the subgroups and reviews them. They vote on them and they establish a set of priority recommendations that comes from this huge amount of stakeholdering work that goes into community and does these deep dives and then sends a report to the governor's office and to the legislature at the end of each year with the recommendations of what's next. 
Um, this year was no exception. We had several budget requests. We had a few bills that came through and had great legislative member partners in this work uh, to bring that forward. And we had great success of really moving the dial. As um, you know, I'm sure, and as our listeners know, there's been a tremendous spike in the behavioral health needs for our children across the state through the pandemic. There was already uh, overcapacity demand. There was already workforce shortages before the pandemic. And then with the pandemic, the, the needs just went you know, exponentially high in what we're trying to do and respond. And so the recommendations that came out this year were to meet immediate crisis needs, also to look at the long-term needs, and then what, what is the next step of what we can do in the next couple of years to continue to help build a strong foundation around behavioral health supports and services. So it's just one aspect of the portfolio of the Children, Youth, and Families Group, but it's one that I'm diving in deep into and has a lot of intersection with my other committees, the K-12 Education Committee and the Capital Committee. We have to have the resources and supports that are across all of these spectrums to make sure we have a solid continuum of care and starting again with where we're not feeding into crisis, but we're actually really working at promoting health and well being up front and doing early intervention and early supports and trying to drive that health and well being spectrum to the promotion of thriving up front instead of just feeding, not having enough services and supports up front, which drives and promotes more crisis downstream. That was a lot of words. Sorry. <laughs> it's a lot of stuff. To have words about. This is the kind of thing that I love about Capital Ideas and having these interviews with lawmakers is it gives people sort of a look behind the curtain to illustrate the fact that lawmakers generally don't just sit around and think and then say, I think I'll do a bill on such and such and then write that bill and try to get it passed. There are 147 lawmakers in the House and Senate, but you're just sort of the, the tip of the iceberg as far as setting public policy. It really does come from the people, which is exactly the idea of having a people's house to help set the policies for the state. This is the kind of little snapshot that I really think makes Capital Ideas a little different from a lot of political podcasts where they just argue I absolutely agree, right? I mean, it's it's how the systems are showing up in people's lives and making sure that you've got that voice access to the table that should be driving where we're going as a legislature. I want to ask you about some of your specific bills, but I also want to talk to you about provisos and just kind of give you an opportunity here to, to talk about a couple of things you may have accomplished by including provisos in our budgets. Yeah, certainly. I, I really, I greatly appreciate that. I mean, one of the provisos that was submitted on behalf of the Children Youth Behavioral Health Workgroup and supported by several other uh, entities outside of the legislature was directly related to supporting the workforce and increasing the workforce. We have such a huge shortage of behavioral health providers in our state, and that was around increasing the, the Medicaid rate. So the, the amount that's being paid from Medicaid to our community behavioral health providers in being able to access care, those rates are you know, far below market rate um, and private insurance carrier rates, that type of work. And so we're really needing to make sure that we're able to carry and provide the rates that allow our community behavioral health providers to exist as 
community behavioral health uh, providers that actually can meet capacity and demand and create an accessible, affordable quality care system that allows that access. And so that was, you know, that's one big area that was brought forward that was a high area of conversation and, and um, need that was brought forward across the state. A proviso is a mechanism with which you identify that and you start building out the technical language that you know makes that happen. Um, that particular proviso might have shown up even without the weight of the Children Youth Behavioral Health Work Group um, because it was a there's such a workforce shortage certainly, um, but added to it and gave me an opportunity to bring the voice of the work group and all of its stakeholders to the table and share in that. Uh, another example that actually kind of goes between a bill and a proviso, we have currently in our state a pilot program. We have two pilots. Well, it's one pilot that has two sites for intensive outpatient or po partial hospitalization supports for children that are in need of uh, intensive behavioral health support services without hospitalization. It's a step of service that's not like full 24-hour hospitalized care, but it is much more intensive, meaning that there is needing, you know, a daily touch point and connection and services. Right now we have two sites, one at Seattle Children's and one at Sacred Heart in Spokane. And so there was a proviso because the pilot already existed in the budget to expand that pilot to a third site that was ready to roll. And we had providers that were ready to, to request and kind of compete for that money and try to set up a third site so that we could actually get those services up and rolling by fourth quarter of this year. And as we know, we have such a high demand and capacity that we needed to get those services up as fast as we could to try to serve kids that are on huge wait lists trying to get into these kinds of services. The next step for the pilot is to, if it's successful, which we're seeing the high demand and need and the success of these programs, is to turn that into a permanent program in the state. So that is a policy change. That's not just a budget ask. That is actually talking about what kind of program should be included in our Medicaid programs. What is it going to be necessary to be able to turn that into a permanent program? Who's involved in that with Medicaid, Medicare waivers, and how does that unfold and how do we direct the healthcare authorities to go do that. So I partnered with Senator Frocht, who ran a bill from the Senate to actually turn this pilot into a permanent program. And that bill also passed. And so you'll see between the two, you'll get services and beds up quickly in fourth quarter to try to add capacity to meet demand. So that's the short-term crisis response of what we were trying to do. And the bill then will launch to try to create this is a permanent program, so then more providers across the state will have access to being able to turn this, turn this dial, and we'll just eventually be able to build this out, this system, and continue to fund on a permanent basis the support and service. Now I'll talk about a specific bill or two that passed just during the legislative session that closed on March 10th. One of them, here we are back to the Children and Youth Behavioral Health Work Group one more time. Uh, your House Bill 1890 made some modifications to that group. I'm not real clear on it, but I'll bet you are. You bet. It was certainly one of the overarching top priorities of the work group and work that has really been coming to fruition for many years. As we're really looking at the work group and the success the work group has, and as they've been working through these these steps to try to build out a continuum of care, it became very clear that in order for us to continue to drive success and actually really know where and how to invest our dollars as a state to make sure that we're building out a system that's going to be robust, 
that can sustain over time, that is truly accessible uh, to all, that is developmentally appropriate, that is equitable, you know, all of those elements that we needed a strong vision and making sure that we're tying all of our recommendations and all of the, <clears throat> excuse me, all the steps that we're moving towards are connected to that vision. And so 1890 establishes uh, another subgroup within the Children and Youth Behavioral Health Workgroup to work with the healthcare authority and to work with experts that can really define the current continuum of care that we have, establish a landscape of what is what we have, really mark by data what our capacity needs and demands are, and understand where our gaps and services are across the state. We have all kinds of behavioral health deserts across our state. I know we've talked about, and uh, the legislature talks about other deserts, right? We have food deserts. We have childcare deserts, that type of thing. So really trying to map out where our behavioral health deserts are around our children, youth, and family support services. And then when we understand what the landscape is, what the, the true affordable, accessible care is, how much service we have where in promotion and intervention versus crisis management, and then intensive intervention and then post-intervention where you're really looking at maintaining well-being and care. And what does that look like? This bill establishes that subgroup that will be charged with developing the landscape, developing the gap analysis, and then also developing the vision of where we want to go. And then that should be driving and connecting to all the other work that's happening in the state, including the rollout of the 988 line, which will be the, the behavioral health aspect of 911. And then also then connecting into making sure we have great intersections and transitions into the adult behavioral health system. So it's really a three-legged stool. And this is one of those legs that's really trying to connect the dots and take a full long-term spectrum view of how do we make sure that we're spending our state dollars in the best way to make sure that we're leveraging every penny of that dollar in a way that's going to provide that robust, accessible, affordable care for all. So it's exciting. I mean, it, it creates that vision for us to take that next step and broad, broad support um, across the state for this work and very exciting to, to actually put a defined vision of where we want to go and making sure that it sets the, the values of what every Washingtonian needs, what every Washingtonian deserves. And then we're putting that as our, as our guiding light. The more you talk about this, the more I realize that this work group is hugely important which is in contrast to conventional wisdom, which you hear in the legislature, someone will sponsor a bill that establishes a work group, and there's bound to be someone who says, oh yeah, great, one more work group, as opposed to legislation that will accomplish something. The fact is, these work groups do accomplish massive work that people rarely hear about. I, I don't think I've ever read a news story about this particular work group and the products that come out of it. So I'm glad that people got to hear a little bit more about it. I want to switch focus just a little bit here to a specific bill, a, very, a bill that does one thing, as opposed to the kind of omnibus things we've been talking about. And that was House Bill 1834, which essentially did something that I find it hard to believe needed to be done because it hadn't been done 50 years ago. Tell me about that bill. Sure, that was a, that's a great stakeholder bill that came from students and it's, uh, it's really to the credit of the students bringing this forward and really highlighting it to it. I started working with a student from Auburn High School 
last year, really trying to figure out how to ensure that we were making sure that every student that had an absence due to some sort of behavioral health issue was actually getting that absence excused. There's a big difference between an excused absence and an unexcused absence. We actually have state law that talks about the number of unexcused absences before you know, you start to have an impact um, and there's other steps that are taken in terms of notifying, trying to make sure we're not losing kids and trying to get them back into the school. When you have an excused absence, you're allowed to make up the work. You're working in partnership with the school district to really try to figure out, you know, how to, to stay on track with the progression of your education. And students, when they're experiencing an anxiety attack, when they are just feeling completely overwhelmed and need to take care of their own behavioral health, it's getting in the way of their learning. If they don't have an excused absence on top of that, it just means that it's just that much more of a burden and that much more of an anxiety and that much more of a, a crisis for them in order to be able to stay on track for their education. So our students were speaking up about that. In fact, the definition around excused absences, mental health and behavioral health um, absences could be excused, but it was very obscure. It wasn't necessarily being defined the same across all of our school districts. You know, we have nearly 300 school districts across our state, all locally controlled on following state statute. But the interpretations and how that falls out in every one of them, we were not seeing a consistent application across the state for students on how that was being applied or criteria and constraints that were making it overly burdensome for students to be able to use and access. I have to give a great shout out to Rep. Johnson and he started working with the Legislative Youth Advisory Council and students from Federal Way and they were also working on its last interim. And then when we got wind of each other's work, we joined forces and developed this bill and then brought it forward. So just to make sure and clarify that any mental health, behavioral health absence that a student might have should be considered a healthcare absence, just like you're having a cold or being sick or anything else and should be excused and really starts to recognize that behavioral health is healthcare that behavioral health is part of the fundamental ability for anybody to learn and be ready to learn and destigmatizes that this is part of everybody's life and everybody knows somebody that's got some sort of challenge at some point in their life. And uh, that has to be honored and recognized, especially when you've got 13 years of school from kindergarten or preschool all the way up as a senior, that you're not going to have some of those tough days or tough times where you need to go take care of your mental health. Kudos to the students. Again, bringing their voice forward. This is one of the great honors of making sure that every voice gets to be at the table, including our youth and our students who are not our future leaders, but actually leading quite a bit today, right, in our society. Something that, that I think defined the last couple of years in the legislature uh, has been among the House Democrats, a real focus on equity in our society trying to reverse some of the ills that have been present for a long, long time. Your work with youth, I think, is an arena in which this really could come into play, talking about how underserved people, people of color, LGBTQ plus kids have gotten the short end of the stick for a long time. And many of the things that you've worked on have included a specific call out that attempts to correct some of those ills. How is that working out? Thanks for the question, Dan. I mean, I think that's absolutely true. And I think it's long overdue and it's the right focus that we're bringing to the legislature. And there's so much work we have to do to really understand, you know, what does equity mean? How is that actually showing up? And 
how are our systems and how is the state showing up in a way that is either causing harm, perpetuating bias and inequities, and what needs to be disrupted and what needs to be changed. And we do that by doing, again, deep, deep stakeholdering work and really understanding and listening. We learn what we don't know and experience. Certainly, as a middle-aged white female, you know, the world shows up for me very differently just because of my skin color and my economic status, my education levels, all of the things that I've had experience in my own world. And I can't expect that the world shows up the same way for everyone else. And unless I'm willing to have those deep conversations, I will never, um, I, we, the systems won't be driven for, they'll only be driven by and defined by those by, um, that are at the table and their experiences, right? So we have to do so much better. The transportation committee um, and the move forward package that came out this year was a great example of doing a deep dive on really reaching out to communities and understand how transportation has divided communities and um, has caused harm to communities, not only by dividing them by putting major highways through the middle of them and dividing and, and breaking up communities and neighborhoods, but also just pollution and the aspects of the healthcare impacts of that as well, right? So understanding how we can really change some of that and what work needs to happen to, to drive around that. The capital budget, where I'm the vice chair, also has started work around really trying to make some direct assessments around communities that have been underserved or haven't been able to access some of the great grant programs we have through the Department of Commerce or through our recreation offices and, and trying to drive through and why aren't they able to access these grant programs. And a lot of it is because of the access to matching capital that they have to have up front. When you have underserved communities that traditionally haven't had the same level of investment in them, it's hard to turn no investment into future investment. So we have to work hard in doing that with our children, our youth, our families and behavioral health. You're exactly right. Part of that landscape analysis and gap analysis is understanding what affordable, what is accessible and what is developmentally appropriate and what is culturally responsive. Being able to trust a system that can show up and provide healthcare in a way that you understand from a cultural perspective and how you're used to it showing up and what seems appropriate to you and feels and gives the warm fuzzy and is actually connected to the care that you need in a language that you need and can understand, right? Even just having a second language, not having to do it through translation, but actually having first language dialogue in a language you know and understand for something that's very important to you, which is your physical health or the health of your baby. Why is your baby calling? Why is your baby uh, you know, colicky, all of these things, being able to ask these questions and being able to understand them in a first language is just key. That's all. I mean, it's, I can never talk about this stuff in just one or two sentences, which I need to do, but that's, uh, we have to do so much better. And the way we do that is making sure that we're bringing everybody to the table so that we can learn and understand and disrupt and create systems that are truly for everyone. Thank you. I wanted to make sure and highlight that because it, it isn't something that people hear about that much, but it's a key aspect of what the House Democrats have been focusing on, and it's not going to stop anytime soon. Nope. We've only got a couple of minutes left here, and I don't want to just slam the door and say goodbye without giving you an opportunity to talk about some other aspects of your work as a legislator. You work for 175,000 people out there in the 5th Legislative District, and I know that some of the things that you have done have a specific impact in your district, including work on the transportation package. Just using that as a kickoff, I want to give you a, a minute or two here to talk about some things other than children, youth, and families. 
Thanks so much, Dan. I mean, it truly is an honor to serve as a representative for the 5th Legislative District, the Fighting 5th, definitely. Uh, and there's so much work across the board that we, you know, certainly during the pandemic and doing constituent support and work around that. But everything from really making sure people can travel from point A to B and do it safely. Highway 18 has been one of the deadliest highways in our state. It goes right through the 5th. It's a major transportation hub that gets from eastern to western Washington to get to I-90. And uh, the transportation package and working to make sure that it ensured the widening of Highway 18 so it can become a safe route to get people from point A to B is just critical. So that was a great honor to be able to work on that space. We talked about budget provisos a little bit. One of the provisos I was able to move forward was to provide a behavioral health coordinator pilot program for the Snoqualmie Valley that will allow behavioral health uh, response support and co-response with the Snoqualmie Valley Police and Fire Departments that cover our, our communities out there, North Bend and Snoqualmie, the city of Snoqualmie, and some of these areas that don't have quite as readily access to more of the urban support systems. We talked about behavioral health care deserts, right? So that's one of those areas that I can show up and, and talk about that. Constituent work around reducing toxic surgical smoke in uh, operating rooms and finally being able to get that one across the line through a bill this year to make our operating rooms more safe for not only our patients, but for our healthcare workers so they're not breathing in, you know, the biohazard smokes and what does that look like and meaning establishing good policy around that and then working with our community hospitals to make it affordable to do these kind of implementations to do that. So the, the subject matter is wide ranging and it's deep and it's important work. And I, I love every minute of it. I am always ready to meet with constituents to talk about what we can do and what we should be doing and how uh, the state is showing up to their doorsteps to, to make a difference. And it's always an honor and a privilege to, to talk with you, Dan, as well, and greatly appreciate that opportunity and look forward to continuing this deep work in service um, and making sure that everybody in the fifth and everybody in Washington, again, has their best chance to thrive and be who they can be and who they want to be. Representative Lisa Callen, I will just inject a personal note here and say I've known you for years. I think that the people of the fifth district and the people of the state are fortunate that you're on their side. And I'm fortunate that we had a few minutes here on Capital Ideas. Thanks, Lisa. And I hope to see you one of these days in person rather than having to do these things by Zoom. Thanks very much for giving me this time. Thank you, Dan. Be well. You too. And there you have State Representative Lisa Callan. What do you think? Was that good? I think so. And if you agree, you really should subscribe to Capital Ideas. You can do that pretty much anywhere you find top quality podcasting. This is your state government we're talking about and what happens here matters. The more you know about how it works, the better it can work for you, for your family, for your business, and for everyone. I'm Dan Frizzell for the Washington State House Democrats, putting people first since 1889. Thanks for listening. <music>